Part 2, Chapter 10, Section 107 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss. Translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, History of the Public Life of Jesus. Chapter 10, The Transfiguration of Jesus and His Last Journey to Jerusalem. Section 107, The History of the Transfiguration Considered as a Mythos thus here as in every former instance after having run through the circle of natural explanations we are led back to the supernatural in which however we are precluded from resting by difficulties equally decisive since then the text forbids a natural interpretation while it is impossible to maintain as historical the supernatural interpretation which it sanctions we must apply ourselves to a critical examination of its statements. These are indeed said to be especially trustworthy in the narrative before us, the fact being narrated by three evangelists who strikingly agree even in the precise determination of the time, and being moreover attested by the Apostle Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 17. The agreement as to the time the eight days of Luke meaning, according to the usual reckoning, the same as the six days of the other evangelists, is certainly striking. And besides this, all the three narrators concur in placing immediately after the transfiguration the cure of the demoniacal boy, which the disciples had failed to effect. But both these points of agreement may be accounted for by their origin of the synoptical gospels from a fixed fund of evangelical tradition in relation to which we need not be more surprised that it has grouped together many anecdotes in a particular manner without any objective reason than that it has often preserved expressions in which it might have varied through all the three editions the attestation of the history by the three synoptists is however very much weakened, at least on the ordinary view of the relation which the four Gospels bear to each other, by the silence of John, since it does not appear why this evangelist should not have included in his history an event which was so important, and which moreover accorded so well with his system, nay exactly realized the declaration in his prologue, verse 14 we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The worn-out reason, that he might suppose the event to be sufficiently known through his predecessors, is, over and above its general invalidity, particularly unavailable here, because no one of the synoptists was in this instance an eyewitness, and consequently there must be many things in their narratives which one who like john had participated in the scene might rectify and explain hence another reason has been sought for this and similar omissions in the fourth gospel and such an one has been supposed to be found in the anti-gnostic or more strictly the anti-docetic tendency which has been ascribed to the gospel in common with the epistles, bearing the name of John. It is, accordingly, maintained 
that in the history of the transfiguration the splendor which illuminated jesus the transformation of his appearance into something more than earthly might give countenance to the opinion that his human form was nothing but an unsubstantial veil through which at times his true superhuman nature shone forth that his converse with the spirits of ancient prophets might lead to the conjecture that he was himself perhaps only a like spirit of some old testament saint revisiting the earth and that rather than give nourishment to such erroneous notions which began early to be formed among gnosticizing christians john chose to suppress this and similar histories but besides that it does not correspond with the apostolic plainness of speech to suppress important facts in the evangelical history on account of their possible abuse by individuals john if he were guided by the above consideration must at least have proceeded with some consistency and have excluded from the circle of his accounts all narratives which in an equal degree with the one in question were susceptible of a docetic misinterpretation now here every one must at once be reminded of the history of the walking of jesus on the sea which is at least equally calculated with the history of the transfiguration to produce the idea that the body of jesus was a mere phantom but which john nevertheless records it is true that the relative importance of events might introduce a distinction so that of two narratives with an equally strong docetic aspect john might include the one on account of its superior weight while he omitted the less important but no one will contend that the walking of jesus on the sea surpasses or even equals in importance the history of the transfiguration john if he were intent on avoiding what were a docetic appearance must on every consideration have suppressed the first history before all others as he has not done so the above principle cannot have influenced him and consequently can never be advanced as a reason for the designed omission of a history in the fourth gospel rather it may be concluded and particularly in relation to the event in question that the author knew nothing or at least nothing precise of that history it is true that this conclusion can form an objection to the historical character of the narrative of the transfiguration to those only who suppose the fourth gospel to be the work of an apostle so that from this silence we cannot argue against the truth of the narrative on the other hand the agreement of the synoptists proves nothing in its favor since we have already been obliged to pronounce unhistorical more than one narrative in which three nay all four gospels agree lastly as regards the alleged testimony of peter from the more than doubtful genuineness of the second epistle of peter the passage which certainly refers to our history of the transfiguration is renounced as a proof of its historical truth even by orthodox theologians 
On the other hand, besides the difficulties previously enumerated, lying in the miraculous contents of the narrative, we have still a further ground for doubt in relation to the historical validity of the transfiguration, namely, the conversation which, according to the two first evangelists, the disciples held with Jesus immediately after. In descending from the mountain, the disciples ask Jesus, Why then, say the scribes, that Elias must first come? Matthew, verse 10. This sounds just as if something had happened, from which they necessarily inferred that Elias would not appear, and not in the least as if they were coming directly from a scene in which he had actually appeared. For in the latter case, they would not have asked a question, as if unsatisfied, but must rather have indicated their satisfaction by the remark, Truly, then, do the scribes say, etc., Hence, expositors interpret the question of the disciples to refer, not to the absence of an appearance of Elias in general, but to the absence of a certain concomitant in the scene, which they had just witnessed. The doctrine of the scribes, namely, had taught them to anticipate that Elias, on his second appearance, would exert a reforming influence on the life of the nation whereas in the appearance which they had just beheld, he had presently vanished again without further activity. This explanation would be admissible if the words, will restore all things, stood in the question of the disciples. Instead of this, however, it stands in both narratives, Matthew verse 11, Mark verse 12, only in the answer of Jesus so that the disciples, according to this supposition, must, in the most contradictory manner, have been silent as to what they really missed, the restoration of all things, and only have mentioned that which after the foregoing appearance they could not have missed, namely, the coming of Elias. As, however, the question of the disciples presupposes no previous appearance of Elias, but, on the contrary, expresses the feeling that such an appearance was wanting, so the answer which Jesus gives them has the same purport. For when he replies, The scribes are right in saying that Elias must come before the Messiah, but this is no argument against my Messiahship, since an Elias has already preceded me in the person of the Baptist, when he thus seeks to guard his disciples against the doubt which might arise from the expectation of the scribes, by pointing out to them the figurative Elias who had preceded him, it is impossible that an appearance of the actual Elias can have previously taken place. Otherwise, Jesus must, in the first place, have referred to this appearance, and only in the second place to the Baptist. Thus, the immediate connection of this conversation with that appearance cannot be historical, but is rather owing solely to this point of similarity, that in both mention is made of Elias. But not even at an interval and after the lapse of intermediate events can such a conversation have been preceded by an appearance of Elias, for, however long afterwards, 
both Jesus and the three eyewitnesses among his disciples must have remembered it, and could never have spoken as if such an appearance had not taken place. Still further, an appearance of the real Elias cannot have happened even after such a conversation, in accordance with the orthodox idea of Jesus. For he too explicitly declares his opinion that the literal Elias was not to be expected, but that the Baptist was the promised Elias. If, therefore, nevertheless, an appearance of the real Elias did subsequently take place, Jesus must have been mistaken, a consequence which precisely those who are most concerned for the historical reality of the transfiguration are the least in a position to admit. If, then, the appearance and the conversation directly exclude each other, the question is, which of the two passages can better be renounced? Now the purport of the conversation is so confirmed by Matthew chapter 11 verse 14, compare with Luke chapter 1 verse 17, while the transfiguration is rendered so improbable by all kinds of difficulties, that there cannot be much doubt as to the decision. According to this, it appears here, as in some former cases, that two narratives proceeding from quite different presuppositions, and having arisen also in different times, have been awkwardly enough combined, the passage containing the conversation proceeding from the probably earlier opinion that the prophecy concerning Elias had its fulfillment in John, whereas the narrative of the transfiguration doubtless originated at a later period, when it was not held sufficient that in the messianic time of Jesus, Elias should only have appeared figuratively in the person of the Baptist, when it was thought fitting that he should also have shown himself personally and literally, if in no more than a transient appearance before a few witnesses, a public and more influential one being well known not to have taken place. In order next to understand how such a narrative could arise in a legendary manner, the first feature to be considered, on the examination of which that of all the rest will most easily follow, is the sun-like splendor of the countenance of Jesus, and the bright luster of his clothes. To the Oriental, and more particularly to the Hebrew imagination, the beautiful, the majestic, is the luminous. The poet of the Song of Songs compares his beloved to the hues of morning, to the moon, to the sun. Chapter 6, verse 9. The holy man supported by the blessing of God is compared to the sun going forth in his might. Judges chapter 5, verse 31. And above all, the future lot of the righteous is likened to the splendor of the sun and the stars. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, Matthew chapter 13, verse 43. Hence, not only does God appear clothed in light, and angels with resplendent countenances and shining garments, Psalm 50, verses 2 and 3, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and following, chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, Luke chapter 24, verse 4, Revelation chapter 1, verse 13 and following, but also the pious of Hebrew antiquity, 
as Adam before the fall, and among subsequent instances, more particularly Moses and Joshua, are represented as being distinguished by such a splendor. And the later Jewish tradition ascribes celestial splendor even to eminent rabbins in exalted moments. But the most celebrated example of this kind is the luminous countenance of Moses, which is mentioned, Exodus chapter 34, verse 29 and following. And, as in other points, so in this, a conclusion is drawn from him in relation to the Messiah. A minori ad majus. Such a mode of arguing is indicated by the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 and following though he opposes to Moses, the minister of the letter, not Jesus. But in accordance with the occasion of his epistle, the apostles and Christian teachers, ministers of the Spirit, and the glory of the latter, which surpassed the glory of Moses, is an object of hope, to be attained only in the future life. But especially in the Messiah himself, it was expected that there would be a splendor which would correspond to that of Moses, nay, outshine it, and a Jewish writing which takes no notice of our history of the transfiguration, argues quite in the spirit of the Jews of the first Christian period, when it urges that Jesus cannot have been the Messiah, because his countenance had not the splendor of the countenance of Moses, to say nothing of a higher splendor. Such objections, doubtless heard by the early Christians from the Jews, and partly suggested by their own minds, could not but generate in the early church a tendency to introduce into the life of Jesus an imitation of that trait in the life of Moses, nay, in one respect, to surpass it. And instead of a shining countenance that might be covered with a veil, to ascribe to him a radiance though but transitory, which was diffused even over his garments. That the illumination of the countenance of Moses served as a type for the transfiguration of Jesus is besides proved by a series of particular features. Moses obtained his splendor on Mount Sinai. Of the transfiguration of Jesus also the scene is a mountain. Moses, on an earlier ascent of the mountain, which might easily be confounded with the later one, after which his countenance became luminous, had taken with him, besides the seventy elders, three confidential friends, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, to participate in the vision of Jehovah. Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 and 9 through 11. So Jesus takes with him his three most confidential disciples, that, so far as their powers were adequate, they might be witness of the sublime spectacle, and their immediate object was, according to Luke verse 28, to pray, just as Jehovah calls Moses with the three companions and the elders, to come on the mountain, that they might worship at a distance. As afterwards, when Moses ascended Sinai with Joshua, the glory of the Lord covered the mountain as a cloud. Verse 15 and following, Septuagint. As Jehovah called to Moses out of the cloud, 
until at length the latter entered into the cloud, verses 16 through 18, so we have in our narrative a bright cloud which overshadows Jesus and the heavenly forms, a voice out of the cloud, and in Luke an entering of the three into the cloud. The first part of the address, pronounced by the voice out of the cloud, consists of the messianic declaration, composed out of Psalm 2, verse 7, and Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, which had already sounded from heaven at the baptism of Jesus. The second part is taken from the words with which Moses, in the passage of Deuteronomy, quoted earlier, chapter 18, verse 15, according to the usual interpretation, announces to the people the future Messiah, and admonishes them to obedience towards him. By the transfiguration on the mount, Jesus was brought into contact with his type Moses, and as it had entered into the anticipation of the Jews, that the messianic time, according to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 6 and following, would have not merely one, but several forerunners, and that, among others, the ancient lawgiver especially would appear in the time of the Messiah. So no moment was more appropriate for this appearance than that in which the Messiah was being glorified on a mountain, as he had himself once been. With him was then naturally associated the prophet who, on the strength of Malachi chapter 3 verse 23, was the most decidedly expected to be a messianic forerunner, and indeed, according to the rabbins, to appear contemporaneously with Moses. If these two men appeared to be the Messiah, it followed, as a matter of course, that they conversed with him, and if it were asked what was the tenor of their conversation, nothing would suggest itself so soon as the approaching sufferings and death of Jesus which had been announced in the foregoing passage, and which, besides, as constituting emphatically the messianic mystery of the New Testament, were best adapted for the subject of such a conversation with beings of another world. Whence, one cannot but wonder how Olhausen can maintain that the mythos would never have fallen upon this theme of conversation. According to this, we have here a mythos, the tendency of which is twofold. First, to exhibit in the life of Jesus an enhanced repetition of the glorification of Moses, and secondly, to bring Jesus as the Messiah into contact with his two forerunners. By this appearance of the lawgiver and the prophet, of the founder and the reformer of the theocracy, to represent Jesus as the perfecter of the kingdom of God, and the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and besides this, to show a confirmation of his messianic dignity by a heavenly voice. Before we part with our subject, this example may serve to show us with peculiar clearness how the natural system of interpretation, while it seeks to preserve the historical certainty of the narratives, loses their ideal truth sacrifices the essence to the form, whereas the mythical interpretation, by renouncing the historical body of such narratives, rescues and preserves the idea which resides in them, 
and which alone constitutes their vitality and spirit. Thus if, as the natural explanation would have it, the splendor around Jesus was an accidental optical phenomenon, and the two appearances either images of a dream or unknown men, where is the significance of the incident? Where the motive for preserving in the memory of the church an anecdote so void of ideas and so barren of inference, resting on a common delusion and superstition? On the contrary, while, according to the mythical interpretation, I do not, it is true, see in the evangelical narrative any real event, I yet retain a sense, a purpose in the narrative, know to what sentiments and thoughts of the first Christian community it owes its origin, and why the authors of the Gospels included so important a passage in their memoirs. End of section 107